Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at the Gospel of John with Dr. Ben Witherington III, Professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. Dr. Witherington, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. All right, so to start with, um, what can you tell us about the date of the writing of John and its provenance? That is, where it's from, where it was written right. from. Well, most scholars would say, and I agree, that it's from late in the first century A.D., and that it's uh, basically an independent gospel. That is, it's not drawing in any significant way on the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, its provenance has been debated, but most scholars think it, it came from Asia Minor, uh, so the Johannine community, as indicated in the revelation of John of Patmos, is in Western Asia Minor, the western part of what we would call Turkey. So most people would associate this gospel with that particular region and churches in that area. And how would you describe the genre of the gospel? Well, it's it's an ancient biography. I, I mean, at this point, scholars are close to unanimous that the way we should be reading Matthew and Mark and, and John, less so on Luke, is in light of ancient biographies. Not modern biographies, but ancient biographies. So ancient biographies differ from modern biographies in a variety of ways, not the least of which is that ancient biographies are not that concerned with precision about time. They're flexible in the way they arrange their material. It's not always in a chronological order. Um, But their main concern is to reveal the character of the central figure they're writing this bios, as it's called in Greek, about. Okay, and some, um, as far as the purpose of the gospel, some scholars will say this is just all about Jesus, and others want to really make a big deal about the Johannine community and how this is really more about the community. What do you have to say about the purpose? Well, there is a purpose statement in John 20 that these things have been written in order that you might begin to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's a pretty clear purpose statement. But no question, it's directed towards um, an audience as well. Uh, And we can call it the Johannine audience if you want to. But this material is tailored for a particular audience at a particular place at a particular time. But it's not all about the audience, it's for the audience. Now, it probably does reflect some of the conflicts that have gone on in those Christian churches in that area, but what's happening there is they're taking Jesus material that they see as relevant and applying it to the situation of those churches. So it's not an either-or question, is this about Jesus, is this about a Johannine community? It's about Jesus, but it's directed as a word on target for a particular community. So um, what clues do we have that, um, that make it scholars think that it's more for the community? Well, there are lots of things in there about some of the disputes and debates that are going on. Uh, Even beginning with the very first chapter, I mean, no other gospel begins with a Logos prologue like this one does. So the immediate suspicion is that this is addressing an audience that knows something about um, deep philosophical reflection on the nature of God and those sorts of things. What's interesting to me about that is that, yes, it it reflects that, but it reflects that in light of Old Testament Jewish wisdom literature. I mean, what's being done there is applying to Christ himself 
material that was earlier said about God's personified wisdom in Proverbs 8 and 9 and other wisdom literature. So that's what's going on. I mean, it is a thoroughly Jewish document, but written for a more Hellenized audience, whether the Hellenized audience is more Gentile or Jew, uh, I would say it's probably a combination of both. But but n- clearly, this is written in a way that's going to reflect on Jewish wisdom literature for a particular audience. So um, as far as the audience, there's um, all sorts of Hebrew words in there that are translated. So is this audience more for the church or is it more for unbelievers? Well, I don't think it's uh, for unbelievers like being to be handed out as a tract, but it is intended to be used by Christian teachers with people to help lead them to Christ. I mean, that's really what I would take from the purpose statement. This, these things have been written in order that a certain audience might begin to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So it's not something to be handed out on a street corner. I mean, it's too complicated for that. It's meant to be used by Christian teachers and evangelists to share the good news with uh, outsiders. But, I mean, it's insider literature written for an insider or multiple insiders to use with the outside world. And what can you tell us about the voice and the style of the gospel? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Kazaman said, and he's right, the gospel of John is shallow enough for a baby to wade in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. Right, right. The Greek is quite simple. It's some of the simplest Greek in any of the Gospels. But the ideas are profound. And so you can wade into this, to use the water metaphor, as deeply as you want to go, really. Uh, but but it's interestingly, it's introducing this material to tease the mind into active thought of people who may not yet be convinced or fully convinced about Jesus and the gospel. So there's often some a lot of repetition um, in, in different places where yep. the author will kind of say the same thing and then I'll repeat back the same thing. And what's yep. um, why, why is that there? What do you, why do you think that's significant? Well, first of all, this is not a document to be handed out. It's an oral text. So... It's going to be read out loud, either in whole or in part, by a professional Christian reader. And precisely because it's an oral text and you're not handing out copies of it, repetition is necessary for people to remember key points that are being made or key stories that are being told. Uh, Repetition was of the essence of ancient education. You memorized things because uh, only very socially elite people, A, were literate, and B, had libraries. Everybody else had to learn by having a good oral memory. And so it's written in a way that recognizes the larger kind of audience that would be listening to this. All right, and you already touched on wisdom literature. What else can you say about the connection between John and ancient wisdom literature? Well, it's very clear that he knows not only the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, like, for example, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, some of the Psalms, that material in general, but, but he also knows intertestamental wisdom literature. He knows wisdom of Solomon. He knows Sirach. And so one of his goals is to present Jesus as the uh, wisdom of God come in the flesh, the very embodiment of everything that had been said about wisdom before in Jewish literature is now come in the flesh and to fruition in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So that it's, that's one of the big things that's going on this, in this gospel that certainly is not going on, for example, in Mark or in Luke. And it's one of the things that makes this gospel somewhat distinctive in various ways. Now, the other thing is, I mean, what's really interesting is 
Take the I am sayings, for example. Almost everything that's in I am the resurrection, I am the life, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the vine, etc., had already been said about wisdom. Hmm. Wisdom is those things. I am the light of the world. Wisdom is that. Wisdom is the link to God. Is it, it? It's this, it's that, it's life. Come unto me and I will give you life. I mean, it seems very clear that um, what the author is saying is it's one-stop shopping in Jesus. Hmm. What had previously been predicated of wisdom can now be found in Jesus. So, And the implication of that is you don't need to go searching through all of Greek or Latin literature or other Jewish literature. If you just focus on Jesus, you're going to get the, the essence of divine wisdom. And so that's part of what's going on here. And the other interesting thing that I will say about this is you'll notice there are no parables in the Gospel of John. Not only are there no exorcisms like we find in the earlier Gospels, there are no parables. Well, why is that? It's because the way Jesus' speech is being presented comports a lot more with the kind of discourse material that was predicated of wisdom in earlier Jewish literature. That's part of the reason that the, mm. the, the ethos or the gestalt of the gospel is different. It has a lot to do with bringing out the connections between earlier wisdom and Jesus himself. And what can you tell us about the structure of the gospel? Well, it's really pretty simple. There's a prologue at the beginning of John 1. There's an epilogue. Start eight twenty three captain's log chapter twenty one, and in between you have the book of signs and you have the book of glory, and the book of signs is going to present us with a representative number of miracles that he's going to call samion or signs seven, because seven is the Jewish number of perfection, and then we're going to have basically an introduction to uh, the passion narrative. And, and the focus will be on leading up to the passion of Christ, his death, then his resurrection and the resurrection appearances. So really, there's only two main parts to this book. But what happens in the gospel is there is a trajectory or momentum. There's a crescendo of the miraculous. It's not an accident. The, the last two sign miracles are the giving of sight to a blind man which is nowhere recorded as ever happening before in the Old Testament, or for that matter, in early Jewish literature. And then, of course, raising from the dead somebody who was so far gone he couldn't possibly have been raised from the dead, Lazarus. So there is a crescendo of the miraculous, and there's also a crescendo of confessions about who Jesus really is by him and to some degree by others as well. Uh, leading up to the climax in in the uh, passion narrative. And it's also, in many ways, very distinctive from what you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You have this long discourse material called, you know, the, the, the high priestly prayer is the, only the end of it, but beginning with John 13 and carrying on through John 17, you've got long discussions about, between Jesus about the coming parakletos or advocate or counselor that'll come after him. There's, I have to go away. There's all of this sort of discussion. Honestly, we have very little of that in the synoptics. So it's clear that the author is not interested in doing a rerun of what's previously been said about Jesus. He's bringing a fresh insight and a new perspective. And I think part of this is because this gospel is probably written by somebody that was a Judean disciple, not a Galilean disciple. And why do I say that? Because there are none of the John, son of Zebedee stories that we find in the synoptics in John. There's not the calling of the Zebedees. There's not the Zebedees were present at the raising of Jairus's daughter. There's not the transfiguration story with the big three up on the mountain with Jesus. There's not the Zebedees asking for the box seats in the kingdom, and I could keep going on. Mm. 
Right. If this is an eyewitness testimony. It's not an eyewitness testimony by a Galilean disciple. I mean, the only miracle story found in John that's also in the synoptics, indeed in all four Gospels, is the feeding of the 5,000, uh, followed by the walking on water by Jesus. Um, otherwise, the big dog miracles in this book are com- completely unique, and the most crucial ones, the last two, are in Judea. They're in Bethany and and the surrounding area in Jerusalem. That's where they are. So at this point, I think most scholars are prepared to say this is a gospel written from a Judean point of view by a Judean disciple. And of course, Jesus had Judean disciples as well as Galilean disciples. Not much is said about them in the synoptics. More is said about them in the Gospel of John, and that's helpful. So um, go ahead and say more about authorship and your take on the identity of the beloved disciple. Sure. Well, uh, what's interesting is, um, I, my personal view is, and this is, I've become more and more confident of, of this over the 20 years since I wrote this commentary on John's wisdom. Um, the internal evidence, I mean, this is a scholarly principle. The internal evidence is primary. The external evidence has to be secondary. So what church fathers were saying about this gospel in the late first, in the second, third, and fourth century, that's one thing. The internal evidence is is the primary way to figure out who in the heck wrote this. So there's no reference to the beloved disciple in the first 10 chapters of John. The phrase never occurs. Nobody is identified as the beloved disciple. But when you get to John 11, at the beginning of John 11, in the story about Lazarus being ill and needing to be healed, we hear these words. Messages sent to Jesus, who's far away. The one whom you love is ill. And the very Mm. next verse identifies this person as Lazarus. Now, if you're listening to this gospel and you get to that point, and then after John 11, the phrase, the beloved disciple crops up in 13 and in the uh, passion narrative itself, at the cross, at the tomb, at Caiaphas's house, etc. Well, the natural way to hear that and process that is this is a continuation of what was said in John 11. I mean, that's perfectly natural. Ancient people didn't have private copies of these Gospels. Christian communities were lucky to have some of the New Testament documents at all. We don't have a canon of the New Testament yet. Uh, Only, I mean, Paul's letters were beginning to be collected at the end of the first century AD. And uh, so for me, um, the best case scenario is this is probably Lazarus, whose real name is Eliezer. We call him Lazarus because that's an anglicized form of the name. And, And I say that for a lot of reasons. First of all, I don't think the Gospel of John was written to correct some mistakes in the synoptics. The synoptics are pretty clear. None of the 12 were present at the crucifixion of Jesus. They had either denied, betrayed, or run away. Okay, Mm. that's point number one. But John 19 front lights that the beloved disciple and his mother and several other women are present right at the cross. So close, they can hear Jesus talking and breathing and everything, okay? And what we are told is that Jesus says from the cross, and again, this is only in the Gospel of John, nothing like this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says, son, behold your mother. And then he says, woman, behold your son. And then we are told And he, the beloved disciple, took Mary into his home thereafter. Well, where was that? Well, the answer is it's in Bethany. This is Lazarus's home. Mary didn't go all the way back to Galilee and and spend time with fishermen. Why would she? She has other children. You know, she would have gone back to Nazareth and been with her other children for sure. 
And we find Mary in Acts 1.14 in the upper room with the other disciples praying. So it's clear she's still in Jerusalem while the passion and the resurrection and the subsequent lead up to Pentecost happens 40 days later. So it seems really clear to me that the prima facie evidence, the internal evidence, points to a Judean disciple and I would say Lazarus. Now there are other clues. The famous story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, who's more than three days dead by, by Jesus, takes us to the story of the resurrection of Jesus in John 20. Peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb. Peter walks into the tomb, says, huh, grave clothes, and leaves scratching his head. The beloved disciple looks into the tomb and sees grave clothes rolled up. And it says, and he believed, even though he did not yet know from Scripture Jesus had to rise from the dead. Well, Mm. guess what? This scene is eerily familiar. It had just happened to him not long before then. So, of course, he believes if I could rise from the dead, Jesus can rise from the dead. I mean, that just sort of clarifies that whole story as to what's going on in that story. Or consider the transition from John 12 to John 13 to back up a little bit. In John 12, we have a celebration of the fact that Lazarus is alive again in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany, right? And Jesus' feet is being anointed, and there's a discussion there, and good things are happening there. And then you turn the page to John 13. And by the way, the Greek at the beginning of John 13 says this happened early in the week of the Passover. So this is not a description of the Last Supper. It's an earlier supper in the week. And that's why we don't have this is my body, this is my blood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in this meal. What we have instead is foot washing, okay? But the crucial thing is, who is Jesus reclining with? at that meal in John 13? And the answer is, he's reclining with the beloved disciple. Now, the normal way that those meals would run is the host reclines with the chief guest. If the host is Lazarus, and Jesus is reclining at the table, on the couch with him for this meal, Well, then the transition, again, from John 12 to John 13 is natural. Okay, here we have a meal in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus is there with the disciples. Same thing in John 13, and it's made very clear that this is done um, because the beloved disciple is the host of what's going on there. So, I mean, it clarifies a lot of the more mysterious things that are going on. Or take the story, for example, of going to Caiaphas' house. Only in the Gospel of John, we hear not only Peter goes to Caiaphas' house, but also this beloved disciple. And he's let right into the house. Well, why? Because the high priest and his entourage already know Lazarus. Indeed, some of them were at his funeral, mourning him when Jesus came to raise him from the dead, and had seen that happen. They know Lazarus. They don't know a Galilean fisherman named Cephas from a hole in the wall. So, I mean, once you begin to read this second half of the Gospel of John, and you part, put things together, they begin to make a lot better sense. And finally, the last big point would be in John 21. Now, Lazarus has been raised from the dead in a dramatic rising from the dead. And at the very end of John 21, Peter uh, says to Jesus, well, what about this man? Because Peter's just been told, in essence, he's going to be martyred. You're going to stretch out your hands and you won't be free to go anywhere and et cetera. And Peter asked Jesus, well, what about this other person, the beloved disciple? And Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I return, what's that to you? Come and follow me. But then 
The evangelist has to clarify. The evangelist puts in a parenthesis. Jesus did not say he would live until Jesus came back. He simply said, if it is my will. Now, why do you need that clarification? Because, because, no doubt, many people thought if he's been, already been raised from the dead, he's not going to die again. But he did. He did. What we have in this gospel is his memoirs put together by somebody else named John, who collected his written memoirs, edited them, and framed them into this beautiful gospel of John. So uh, most of the big conundrums that are raised by the second half of the gospel of John are, are answered, A, by saying, this is written by a Judean disciple, and B, most probably it's written, uh, the memoir, the, the initial writing of this source material was by Lazarus, even though it's collected and edited and put together in the final form by somebody named John. Fascinating. So over the last several decades, have you found that more and more New Testament scholars are adopting that view? Well, here's the interesting thing. I presented this, uh, not quite like I just shared it with you, but but in a, in a scholarly paper to a whole room, hundreds of Johannine scholars, expecting a whole bunch of pushback. There was no pushback. There was hmm. Oh, <laughs> oh, now what they did want to know is, okay, now which John put this together? And that's when I pointed out that we now have papyrological evidence that John, son of Zebedee, was probably martyred early, just like his brother was. I mean, James, son of Zebedee, was martyred by Herod Agrippa II, right. and, and that's recorded in the book of Acts. And of course, Jesus predicted that the two Zebedees would be baptized with the same baptism he was baptized with. And what he's talking about is his death. He's talking about martyrdom, you know, baptized in blood by death, by martyrdom. And uh, so uh, I suggested that it's not John, son of Zebedee. It's John of Patmos who put these documents together. And, of course, we have clear evidence that he was connected to those communities in Ephesus and the other six churches, because he wrote to them as an authority figure for them. So I think it's John of Patmos who presented to us in the in the 90s, the final form of this gospel, after he returned from exile when Domitian died in the early 90s. I think that this is the last gospel to be fully formed, but what he had done is he'd gone back and collected the memoirs of uh, the beloved disciple in Asia Minor and put together this this beautiful document we call the Gospel of John. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's something to think about for sure. Because I was always used to the traditional view. but um... Sure. And let me tell you where that comes from. It largely comes from a certain reading of Justin Martyr, and also from Irenaeus. But the earliest witness about who wrote this gospel is Papias from the end of the first century AD. And he distinguishes between two Johns. There's John the Apostle, whom he never met, who was the earlier John. And there's John the Elder, the one he calls the Elder. That surely has to be John of Patmos, whom he did actually meet late in the first century A.D. So uh, Papias says nothing about it must have been written by John, the son of Zebedee. He simply says this document was put together by John, by a John, and I met him. I met this person. Well, for my money, what that means is the source material in the Gospel of John and 1 John is material from the beloved disciple. But notice how 2nd and 3rd John are labeled. These, these are letters from the elder to churches that are remote from where he is. Okay? Well, I think John the Patmos is John the elder. It, that, that, that makes perfectly good sense to me. And we know he was involved with those communities, uh, not only from the book of Revelation, but later, we know that some John was buried 
right there in Ephesus. There's a, a church uh, with a baptismal font, an early church from about the fourth or fifth century that remembers St. John the Divine who gave us this gospel. Okay, fine. It's just not John Zebedee. All right. So how about the social setting of the gospel and particularly how the church in this situation is related to the synagogue? Yeah, that's an important thing. But one more thing needs to be said about this other matter. The real reason the church fathers in the fourth and fifth centuries said it must have been written by an apostle is because the Gnostics loved this gospel of John. They used, it was their main gospel in the second and third century. And Irenaeus was swatting Gnostics like flies. And he, he wanted to say, it can't be the way they understand it. Therefore, it must have been written by one of the 12. Therefore, it must have been written by one of the original apostles. Now, Irenaeus is making all kinds of assumptions, but what he's trying to do is rescue the Gospel of John from the grasp of the Gnostics so that the Orthodox Church wouldn't lose the Gospel of John. So that's how that whole tradition of it has to be by the son of Zebedee came from. It was the church saving Orthodox documents from heresy. That's what right. was going on. Making it more authoritative, so yes, to speak. exactly, exactly. In regard to what's going on in this gospel, um, it, it certainly reminds us that there was animus between um, devout early Jewish Christians and others that were part of the synagogue. No question about that. Uh, but if you look at the synoptics, there's already animus against Jesus by various Jewish individuals and groups of people, Pharisees, priests, Levites, scribes of the Pharisees, etc., etc. So, uh, you know, I don't really think the Gospel of John is simply reflecting a picture of what's going on immediately in those churches in Asia Minor. But if you read the Revelation 2 and 3, some of the problem uh, comes from the synagogue, which is actually called a synagogue of Satan, if you'll remember. And so, yes, material is being presented in the Gospel of John that's of relevance to dealing with that problem in the Johannine community. But it's based on the fact that Jesus already had an antagonistic relationship with some people in the synagogue and some of the Jerusalem Jewish authorities as well. What's interesting is that whereas in the synoptics, the Pharisees keep coming up again and again as the interlocutors or problems. In the Gospel of John, it's not so much the Pharisees. Um, it, it has more to do with the uh, central authorities in Jerusalem. Well, now this is not a surprise because if this is by the beloved disciple, who was in charge of the religious apparatus in Jerusalem? It was uh, Sadducees. It was the priests and the Levites and their scribes. So not a surprise. There's a lot less emphasis on Pharisees in this fourth gospel if it's by a Judean disciple. And Hmm. there's a strong uh, attempt to show that even the Jewish religious authorities in Jerusalem were not united against Jesus. So you have Nicodemus, you have Joseph of Arimathea, and they are presented as sort of interested parties or even secret disciples of Jesus uh, who want things to go well from him and feel like the Sanhedrin made a mistake, so they undertake to bury him in an honorable way, whereas normally he would be left on the cross for days to publicly shame him and his family forever. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I think that the beloved disciple is trying to be fair to the fact that the Sanhedrin was, in fact, uh, divided on what about Jesus and what should we do with him. Uh, but, But nonetheless, there was Caiaphas and those who could make the final decision, and they were responsible for handing him over to Pilate. 
So as far as historicity, um, the gospel has long been criticized by so many scholars by being far less historical than the synoptics. Uh, What do you think about that whole issue? Well, I think it's ironic because the only gospel that internally directly claims to be at least some of it by an eyewitness is the fourth gospel. Now, that's really odd if, in fact, it's the least eyewitness gospel. So, um, you know, uh, there have been, in the last 15 years, there have been continuous seminars at the Society of Biblical Literature about John and history, and how should we evaluate the historical content of this gospel. Now, I I have to say that I think there's considerable historical substance to this gospel. Uh, I don't think there's anything just made up out of whole cloth in this gospel. But what is done is that the material is taken and it's couched in a wisdom kind of way to present Jesus in a certain light. That that seems very clear to me. And so we're we're just going to leave out all our favorite Lucan parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the prodigal son, etc., right? We're going to leave all that out. We're going to leave out our exorcisms, because so far as we know, Jesus didn't perform any exorcisms in Judea. That was all in Galilee. So we're leaving all of that out to focus on a more Judean portrayal of Jesus and his disciples in Judea and, and in Samaria. You know, we wouldn't know that Jesus had any real Samaritan followers if it weren't for John chapter 4. Uh, we know he went through Samaria. Luke says he went through Samaria. Well, we don't know that he went to Samaria and actually evangelized people. Well, the author of the fourth gospel knows that he did. So the focus is different. And I, I would say none, nonetheless that it, it's clear that there is historical substance here uh, that is not given to us by the synoptics. I mean, a good example of that would be Somehow, some way, the person who wrote this gospel knows what went on with the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Now, how is that possible? Well, because the priests were there to hear this discussion. They handed him over. They stuck around prodding Pilate again and again to make a decision, you know, where would the beloved disciple have gotten this information? Well, from his friends in the priesthood, from people that he knew that were were there. Um, interesting fast footnote. What language would Jesus have talked to Pilate in? Clearly Greek. Because Pilate knew no Semitic languages, and Jesus probably didn't ever use Latin. So that leaves Greek. So that would have been an interesting conversation in Greek about the truth, uh, among Hmm. other things. So, I mean, I think you can explain some of the particulars in this gospel that add detail to the story. For example, we are told in the synoptics that Peter lopped off the ear of the slave of the high priest. We're not told his name. In John, we are very clearly told this was Malchus. Well, now who would know that? The beloved disciple would know who that person was and what his name was. We're told in John 18 that the Romans had come with the temple police to take Jesus prisoner. And we have that scene about who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth, that whole thing. Well, that seems to be a much more substantial account of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane than you get in the synoptics. In synoptics, you have a much more summary account of what's going on there. Or take the fact that in the Gospel of John, we don't really have a trial. We have a hearing before Annas and Caiaphas in the house of Caiaphas is what we have. And then eventually a handing over of Jesus to Pilate. Well, that's probably because... The beloved disciple was there for the hearing. 
he was not present for the Sanhedrin. He's not going to report on something he was not present to hear or could get at least as a secondary source. Okay. So, I mean, I think you can explain these differences, but I would say there is historical substance to uh, the Johannine material. Now, under inspiration to talk as a Christian person, this author was had flexibility to arrange his material in the way he wanted to and to present it from a particular point of angle of incidence or point of view. All of that was in the service, the larger service of the, the, the greater truths that he wanted to make clear about Jesus. So how about the words of Jesus? I mean, you get a sense reading the synoptics that the words of Jesus um, are more realistic, so to speak, and that the words of Jesus in John are more uh, theologically constructed. Yeah. Here's what I'd say about this. I think that Jesus had a different kind of discourse in Jerusalem than he did in Galilee. In Galilee, he talked to the ordinary Galileans in parables and then gave explanations to his inner circle. In Judea, he's going, he knows, first of all, he's in a more cosmopolitan environment. And he knows that there's far more Hellenization of that whole area. There's far more education, more Hellenization in and around Jerusalem. Uh, and so his mode of discourse is different. It's like Jewish wisdom, but it's used in a, such a way that it would relate to people who were more broadly educated in the nature of philosophy and wisdom and those kinds of things. So I think Jesus had a different form of discourse, by and large, in, uh, the, in when he was in Jerusalem than, than when he's in Galilee talking to the general public. Okay. And uh, how about the Christology of John? Of course, this is core throughout. It's yeah. all about Christology. So how could, how could you sum that up, key points? Well, this gospel, along with certain hints in Paul, is the first place where we see serious theological reflection on what came to be called the Trinity. There's God the Father, there's the only begotten Son who can also be called God right from the jump in John 1, right? And then say things like, before Abraham was, I am, which at very minimum means I pre-existed Abraham. So there's that. But there's also the person of the Holy Spirit called the Parakletos, who's clearly not merely a force, may the force be with us, it's a person he says, I will send another paracletos. And that the basic meaning of that word is an advocate or a counselor, not so much a comforter as a teacher of some kind. And he will lead you unto all truth. So we already have the beginnings, the raw material, if you will, of a Trinitarian way of looking at God in the Gospel of John. And not a surprise that because there is so much Christological material in this gospel, it becomes the basis of the discussions at the Council of Nicaea in 325 and the discussions at Chalcedon in 450 about what do we say about the relationship of the Son to the Father and what do we say about the two natures of Christ, his humanity and his divinity. Not a surprise that the Gospel of John is the heavy hitter that they're discussing and debating and those two ecumenical councils in the 4th and 5th century, for sure. Um, so it's a very high Christology, but it's, it's not a Christology that should lead us to say, well, Jesus was 90% divine and 10% human. Because at the very same time, the author wants to emphasize the full and true humanity of Jesus throughout the gospel. He's not merely a divine person wearing human skin. He's the God-man. I, I really am not happy with the translation of the end of the prologue in John 1 that says, and 
the word became flesh, because that's really not what's being said. What's being said is the word took on flesh. It was an additive process, not an exchange process. He ceased Mm. to be the word and he became something else wrong. (laughs) No, he took on flesh and became the God man. And so we have this powerful theology of the incarnation, fully divine, fully human. Well, how does that work? If we can have a a moment of Christological discussion, I would say that what happens is what Paul says happened in Philippians 2. He put the omnis on hold, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, etc., and accepted the normal limitations of being human, limitations of time and space and knowledge and power and mortality. What he didn't assume was the limitation of sin, which is not a natural human limitation. God didn't make us that way. It's acquired as a result of human fallenness, right? So Jesus, the Son of God, limits himself in order to be fully human. So he weeps at the grave of a friend. He's hungry at various points. He's thirsty. He needs rest, all those sorts of things. And if we were to borrow a little bit from Luke, Luke tells us as he was growing up, he grew in wisdom and his stature as well. He, he had, he's Adam without the fall. In terms of his humanity, he's Adam gone right. The Adam who resisted temptation, the Adam who lived out the way God wanted uh, human race to live out as well. So, you know, my word would be the high Christology does not in any way negate the high humanity of Christ. He had to be fully human to die. And he for sure died on the cross. That being the case, what we have to do is accept the mystery that he was the God-man. He represented God to us and us to God and was the perfect revelation of both of these things. And, and that's also why, because he was truly human, that the New Testament can go on and say that we should be imitators of Christ. Now, I used to have a problem with that when I was young. My Sunday school teacher would say, be like Christ, be like Christ. And there'd be this little voice in the back of my head that said, yeah, right. He had a God button. I don't even have an easy button. How can I be like Christ? You know, what's, what's that really all about? But then when I realized that he condescended and accepted our normal limitations, and we have been given the grace so that we can resist temptation and approximate being like being Christ-like without becoming Christ, because we'll never do that. Ne- nevertheless, his humanity is set up in a, as an example for us to follow, as an ethical paradigm of resisting sin, doing good, glorifying God in all that we are, being faithful unto death, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, in many ways, the Gospel of John is the richest and fullest portrait of both the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Excellent. All right, how about um, some themes um, throughout the Gospel? I'm really fascinated by the the mention of all the different um, feasts, festivals, etc., that are prescribed in the Old Testament. why does John include those there? What is significant about well, this? Well, one of the things he is trying to accomplish from early on is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these feasts. He's the Passover lamb. He's the light of the world. And by the way, the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, was the last of these Jewish festivals to be created on the basis of the Maccabean victories in the retaking of Jerusalem. Right. So what's being said here is that all of those wonderful feasts, Passover, Booths, Pentecost, I mean, who's sending the Spirit at Pentecost? Jesus is, right? 
He's the fulfillment of all of these Jewish festivals. If you're looking for water that cleanses you, uh, he's giving you a kind of water, he says to the Samaritan woman, that will prevent you from ever lacking what you need. Your thirst will be quenched for everlasting life along the way. So I, I would say that the point is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these festivals. Uh, and of course, the climax of that is when he actually becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on the cross. So John also has a lot of uh, dualisms in the gospel, such as uh, light and darkness. Yep. What is, uh, where does that come from? Well, uh, I, in some ways, I draw an analogy with the way Rembrandt painted his wonderful paintings. I mean, consider the famous painting of the prodigal son. The way he focuses like a laser beam on the central figures he wants your eye to be drawn to is by putting the light on them, and everything else is kind of in shadow. This gospel wants the high-beam headlights right on Jesus. So, for example, this gospel is not very interested in the twelve or the calling of the twelve. And when he mentions disciples, he mentions disciples that don't get mentioned in, in the synoptics, like Philip. Who the heck was Philip? right? Those sorts of things. So uh, in order to make the main thing the main thing, there's going to be a more dramatic contrast between light and darkness. And we already have those kind of contrasts from Isaiah. I mean, one of the books that most influences the presentation of this story is Isaiah, and the other is the Psalms. You know, Isaiah says, the people who have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. So some of these larger, big-ticket images of contrast between good and evil, light and dark, all that sort of stuff, the gospel writer didn't need to get that from Greek philosophy or from Gnosticism, for that matter. It's already there in the Old Testament and the prophets in the Old Testament and in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament as well. And it's all about leading people to make an ethical choice. And that theme in John 1 is is stressing the tragedy. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Uh, I mean, it's even to the point where it says, uh, you know, that that, he came as the light of the world, and they preferred darkness to light. It's a tragedy, his own people, his own family. So in this gospel, we hear for the first time that the brothers of Jesus didn't believe in Jesus during the ministry, John 7, 5. They sort of goad him like Joseph's brothers. Okay, you want to be famous, go up to Jerusalem, perform a few more miracles, right? Even his own family didn't understand him and receive him before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Only Mary was faithful unto the end at the cross from his family. And he was not buried by his older bro- oldest brother, James, or the other brothers, which was their duty to do. No, he had been even rejected within his own household. And then they would have assumed that crucifixion was the coup de grace. I mean, it was the ultimate shaming of their family. So they wanted nothing to do with burying him. So uh, I think the theme, uh, you know, is enunciated right from the beginning. The interesting thing about the Greek of that is uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not. And then that verb, that next Greek verb could either mean has not understood it or more likely, has not overcome it. Right, right. And and so there are these dramatic contrasts in this gospel, not only between light and dark, but between good and evil in various ways, to make crystal clear what's at stake of either accepting Christ or, or not accepting Christ. The other interesting thing is the use of the word cosmos, which is usually translated world 
but what it's it's not referring to the globe. It's referring to the world of humanity. And more particularly, it's referring to the world of humanity organized against God. So when you get to the famous verse in John 3, for God loved the cosmos. (laughs) That is, he loved the world organized against himself. You're supposed Mm -hmm. to say, wow, what kind of gracious God is this? He loved the world, so he sent his only begotten son. That's just, that, that's mind-blowing. What kind of God is that merciful and that gracious, you know? And, and it's, it's written in light of an ongoing rejection of the gospel by uh, many Jews, most Jews, Reading Romans 9, 1 through 5, most of Paul's contemporaries were rejecting the good news that were his fellow Jews. Uh, It's written against that sort of dark background to the story, but with still the focus on this is the good news for everybody. And what can you tell us about uh, flesh and spirit? How do those function in the gospel? Well, early Jews didn't believe in the Greek idea of the immortal soul. They believed that there was a non-material part of yourself called the human spirit. For example, in Luke, Jesus on the cross, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Right? So, it's not an antagonistic dualism. It's uh, two parts of how God created us. He made us as material creatures with life breath and with a human spirit. And uh, so this is not flesh versus spirit, but the problem is that the word sarks, which is the word for flesh, can sometimes have a negative ethical valence, meaning sinful flesh, corrupt flesh. When Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15 says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, um, he's not saying this because uh, he's using the word flesh in some ethical way. He's saying this. He's just saying our mortal flesh is going to have to be raised from the dead and given an immortal condition to be part of the kingdom of God. So there are two ways the term flesh are used in the New Testament. And one simply means our physical existence, our physical existence. And uh, and so uh, there's a strong emphasis on Jesus not being merely a spirit, even after resurrection. Uh, What happens in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and Mary Magdalene is that she grabs him. The Greek says, me mu optu. Jesus doesn't say, don't touch me. That would be a very bad translation. It's, don't cling to me. I do have a physical form. Don't cling to me. Well, how did we get translations like don't touch me? The Latin. The Latin Vulgate renders that memu optu as nolo tangere, no touchy. And we're off to the races because in the Western church, the Latin Bible was the Bible all the way up to the Reformation. So that was where the idea came from, uh, you know, that, that, he he shouldn't be touched. He wasn't tangible, etc. No, he was definitely tangible. He had a resurrection body. He could eat. He could be touched, etc. So there's not a, even in the resurrection. It's not a purely spiritual matter. Why not? Because God is a creator God, and He's interested in redeeming all of creation, not just our scrawny souls. A good outcome for God is not a bunch of scrawny souls in heaven. The final picture that this gospel and all other gospels present is that someday we will be raised from the dead and be made like Christ, even in the flesh. That's where the story is going. And if you could take these two together, both uh, belief 
believing and eternal life. How yeah. do those function together throughout the gospel? Well, first of all, I'd say let's not translate it eternal life. Only God has eternal life, life that always was, is, and always will be. We'd be far better to talk about everlasting life, a life that begins with the new birth and continues on positively in the forward direction into eternity. So what God is giving us is everlasting life. What he's not giving us is eternal life because only God has eternal life. So that's just a distinction that I think is pretty important, really. But the relationship between these two things are, is, is already enunciated in John 1. How exactly do we become children of God? And this is a big emphasis in the Gospel of John. We are not born children of God. We are born creatures of God created in God's image. According to Johannine theology, we become children of God, by means of the new birth, by means of being born from above or born again, to use the language of John 3. And what is denied in John 1 is not on the basis of blood, that is some ethnic connection we have with a previously faithful person, not in the basis of inheritance, not in the basis of a decision of a parent about a child, no, how exactly are, do we become children of God? We become children of God by grace and through faith in this good news about Jesus Christ. That's, that's how it happens. So the connection is crucial. Everlasting life is not an automatic, you know, even if you're raised in the church. I remember one preacher once saying, just because the mouse is in the cookie jar doesn't make him a cookie. Just because somebody's been in the church all their life doesn't make them a Christian. And this gospel would, would absolutely agree with that. This gospel would absolutely agree with that. Even to that great Sunday school teacher, Nicodemus, the word is, you must be born again. I mean, here's a devout, pious, faithful, non-hypocritical Jew. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Well, if that's true of good old Nick at night, well, it's true of all of us, frankly. And uh, how about the I am sayings? You already touched on those, some relating them to wisdom. But yeah. I guess the main question is, are these evidence of Jesus' claim to divinity? Well, the wisdom figure in Proverbs 8 and 9 is a personification of an attribute of God, God's wisdom, God's mind, the very mind of God. So even if you just look at this in light of wisdom literature, the answer to the question is it already implies that he's part of the Godhead for sure. Uh, because only he can offer the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, in the Old Testament, only God can offer those things. Only God can offer the way, the truth, and the life. Only God can offer the resurrection, and so on. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different way of suggesting what, for example, Paul says straight up, which is... <laughs> That, that he is indeed uh, of the very nature God. All right. So finally, um, how about application? How could we use the Gospel of John? How can we apply it to the life and mission of the church? How would, if you were a pastor and you were preaching on this, what applications would you offer for the church? Well, uh, I have been a pastor. I've pastored six churches. And uh, what I would say is that, unfortunately, during my lifetime, the church has become more and more biblically illiterate. And to me, this is heartbreaking. They don't even know their own source material very well. And much of what they have learned, they need to unlearn because it's really not biblical. And so I think that going forward in the 21st century, 
we need more teaching pastors who are prepared to unpack the Word of God in detail. And, you know, one of the things I'd say to pastors is don't insult the intelligence of your congregations. There are undoubtedly many well-educated people and bright people, even if they aren't real well-educated in your congregation. Tease their minds into active thought. Challenge them with the big ideas, the big ticket things that you see, for example, in the Gospel of John. Challenge their faith to embrace a broader and bigger vision of Christ and the Godhead and salvation and so many important things. And, you know, and show your own enthusiasm for all this material. You know, if you get up there and give a turgid discourse uh, and, and, and it comes across as dull as dishwater, well, this is not going to get the job done. And the other thing to say is you don't need to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. You don't need to water down everything to pablum. It's not necessary. If anything, they need to be challenged to think higher and better and more deeply about these matters. And so my word would be, the Gospel of John is perfect because it's dealing with huge ideas in simplified terms. The terms are beguilingly simple. And he has his own vocabulary. I mean, in John, it's everlasting life. In the synoptics, it's salvation. In John, it's signs. In Mark and the synoptics, it's dunamis, mighty works, mighty works. He's got his own vocabulary, his own way of conveying these truths. Use the simple language to get them to probe deeper into these deep concepts and what they really mean for us today. Because certainly our country, our churches, our people need salvation just as much today as they ever did. And in the midst of a pandemic, need to know that all manner of things will be well if they will place themselves in the hands of their Lord. All right. All right, good words to close on. Well, my name is Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been discussing the Gospel of John with Dr. Ben Witherington III, Professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. Dr. Witherington, thank you so, so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Good to be with you. All right. Peace to all. Take care.